Welcome to Trawler Talk, the podcast for trawler nuts and long-range cruising enthusiasts. I'm your host, Andrew Parkinson. This episode is brought to you by Outer Reef Yachts. As a leading manufacturer of award-winning long-range motor yachts, Outer Reef specializes in building robust blue water yachts offering luxury, efficiency, safety, and technological ingenuity. With boats ranging from 58 to 115 feet, Outer Reef has the perfect model to suit any cruising lifestyle. To learn more, visit OuterReefYachts.com. That's OuterReefYachts.com. Hey guys, Andrew Parkinson here, Editor-in-Chief of PassageMaker Magazine and PassageMaker.com, and you're listening to another episode of Trawler Talk on PassageMaker Radio. Today, we're going to talk about perfect Great Loop boats, specifically the core components that are most important when tackling an endeavor like the Great Loop. If you're considering doing the Great Loop, or even if you're not, this episode should at least give you some insight into what key qualities you want to be looking for in a long-range coastal cruising boat, and perhaps help to narrow down your options, hopefully making your next boat buying process easy and stress-free. Now, if you're an avid Trawler Talk listener, I'm going to bet that you've probably heard of something called the Great Loop, the popular circle route that takes you up the East Coast, across rivers and canals to the Great Lakes, down rivers and canals to the Gulf of Mexico, and around Florida to the East Coast again. Or you can do it the other way. But before you cast off on this 6,000-mile all-American cruise, or mostly American if we can ever get back into Canada again, there's a lot to know. Perhaps most important is what kind of boat is best suited to complete the loop. Sure, people have done the loop on boats as small as kayaks and as large as 70-plus footers, but if you're average like me, you're probably looking for something a little more in between. According to the America's Great Loop Cruisers Association, average boat length among its members is around 39 and a half feet. More than half the members have boats in the 35 to 45 foot range, but size isn't everything. And there's a lot of components that matter way more than boat size when you're on the loop. Joining us on the podcast today to shed some light on those components is veteran cruiser, charterer, and award-winning marine journalist, Chris Caswell. And if you read Passage Maker Magazine, you probably know Chris for his regular column, A Dash of Salt. Hey, Chris, welcome to Trailer Talk. Great to be here, Andrew. Okay, Chris, loop us in. I'm finally in a time and place in my life where I'm ready to do the Great Loop. I need a boat, or maybe I already have a boat, but I'm not sure if it's the right one to get me successfully around the loop. What's the number one most important thing I should consider when looking at a potential Great Loop boat? I think there are two things, but I'd pick air draft as number one. Air draft is arguably the most important dimension since there are fixed bridges along the route that you simply can't bypass. The absolute maximum air draft is 19 feet, six inches, and that's at mile 300 on the Illinois River. If you want to take your route through downtown Chicago, the air draft comes down to just 17 feet. If you want to do the full length of the Erie Canal, which I love, without detours, you're going to encounter two fixed bridges at 15 feet, six inches, just like the old song, low bridge, everybody down for we're coming to a town. Sorry about the singing, folks. <laughs> These air drafts mean that everything must be under those heights. Now, VH antennas fold down easily, of course, but many loop boats already have masts or arches that hinge downward, complete with the electronics, including the radar and GPS. What about draft itself? What's the cutoff here? Draft is really important. Uh, the water can get downright skinny in parts of the loop, and you're going to hear all sorts of numbers bandied about as the minimum, but four feet will get you through without having white knuckles. Five feet would make you very nervous in some places, and there are boats 
that have gotten through with six-foot drafts, but they carried spare propellers and shafts. You've been warned. Number three, fuel. How much fuel do I need, and what kind of range should I be thinking about? You wouldn't think it was important, but tankage is really important. There are long stretches of the various Great Loop segments that, amazingly enough, are free from fuel docks. So your absolute range must be at least 208 miles. You'll find the big leg of this nature on the Tennessee Tom Bigby Waterway, where you're going to encounter three-knot currents as well, depending on which way you're heading. And when we talk about engines, uh, any preference between gas or diesel? On the lower Mississippi, gas-powered boats need a longer range, as much as 450 miles, since some of the fuel only comes from diesel-only truck deliveries. Check with the Loop Association for the latest information on fuel availability before you depart. And Chris, how about beam? I know uh, catamarans regularly do the Great Loop. Any limitations there? It isn't really a problem, but if you're taking a catamaran, you'll need a beam of less than 23 feet to go up Canada's Trent Severn waterway. And as you said, they may not let us in for a while. It's a lovely waterway, but it can be bypassed if necessary. Okay, and what about beam on a monohull? Does that even matter? We're talking about catamarans. It does. At the same time, having more than a 16-foot beam in a monohull means that you won't get into many slips at marinas, so you'll end up at the T-dock endings. That positioning means you're closer to passing traffic, more waves, lumpier nights, because river traffic runs 24-7, and that means tugs with big barges cruising past all night long. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Okay, number five, water. Well, carry as much water as you can because, frankly, some of the water that comes out of dock hoses on parts of the route is really only technically fresh water. Uh, Have a good water purifier system aboard, either for the tanks or at your galley sink, because trust me, you will thank me when you want to brush your teeth or take a shower. And the opposite of water, number six, waste. Not always a lot of easy places to pump out along the loop. What are some best practices? You know, what should our listeners know about that and planning ahead? Well, this is surprising as well. Pump out stations can be few and far between on some of the lakes. And you do not want to empty your black water tanks into America's lakes and rivers. Not to mention that getting caught is painful to your wallet. Have sufficient black water tankage. Let's talk about navigation because we're going to be doing a lot of it. What are the must-haves to get it done? Baseline navigation equipment that we need. And also, with regard to charts, paper or plastic? Well, I like paper charts. I'm an old-timer, and I particularly like the strip charts that follow the river or canal rather than aligning with north, as most charts do. makes it easier to follow along for me. But a good chart plotter and GPS are invaluable because some of the parts of this adventure, well, they just look alike. And you may want to know how far you are from anywhere. Plus, with commercial traffic everywhere, chart plotters are more up to date than paper charts when it comes to mud banks or thin water. And a depth sounder, absolutely essential to confirm when you just ran aground. (laughs) You'll need a VHF radio, too, to communicate with bridge tenders and marina staff. A handheld VHF radio and make it waterproof is invaluable for use on deck when going through locks. There are some inland stretches also where an autopilot can be used safely, and you'll have legs across open lakes and along rivers and the intercoastal waterway where the autopilot can give the skipper a break. Radar with AIS is also useful because it can show what's coming downriver 
with the right of way. Now, the loop is usually done around the seasons. You'll obviously need to have the northern sections in your wake as we get deeper into fall. How much consideration do we need to give to climate control on board? Heating, air conditioning? The short answer is yes, you want both. Summer can swelter, winter can be downright nippy, and these days, who knows what spring and summer are going to bring? There's a loop memory jingle. Spring up, going up the intercoastal in the Atlantic in spring. Shuffle off to Buffalo and to Chicago in the summer. Fall down the Heartland Rivers and winter across the Gulf. That makes it an all-season voyage. Flybridge, sedan, to each his own. What are some of the pros and cons of each of those? Steering seems like a no-brainer, but ideally a flybridge is wonderful on those weather days when a flybridge is wonderful. <laughs> on the days when it's not, a lower helm or a pilot house is going to keep you out of the sun, the rain, the wind. A full enclosure of the flybridge will suffice. It's your call. Whether or not you have the flybridge, give a lot of consideration to shade. Great loop boats with covered side decks not only protect the crew from sun or rain, and that's especially in locks, but also shade the salon. Pull out awnings, bimini tops, great on the flybridge and then the cockpit. The bottom line is protect your beak from the sun, unless you want to put your dermatologist kids through harbor. <laughs> and again, if you do go flybridge, it's ever important to remember that absolute maximum air draft, 19 feet, 6 inches in Chicago there, right? Absolutely. Okay, anchors. Sure, you'll spend a lot of time at marinas, maybe even more time hanging on a hook somewhere. Anchors come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. What do we need for the loop? What do you recommend? Well, even if you plan to marina hop, you're going to need at least two anchors, a Bruce and a Danforth. These will handle everything you come across from mud to grass to sand to gravel. And having two anchors allows you to set them apart to keep the boat from swinging in currents or wind or whatever. So that makes a pretty thorough top 10 for going for the basics there. What other things should we be looking for? Things that maybe aren't absolutely vital, but definitely worth considering. Oh, I'd put thrusters at the top of the list. You'll fall on your knees to kiss bound stern thrusters after going through a difficult lock with swirling currents. Good skippers, you can get by with twin engine throttles, but a thruster joystick is really worth its weight in gold. Next up, I'd say side decks. Now, we mentioned side decks as protection against rain and sun, but side decks make line handling easy for your crew, even if you're running shorthanded. Having to dash through the salon to get from the bow to the stern gets old really quickly. And especially when you're locking, I'm sure that's going to make it a lot easier. Oh, boy. You're going from one end to the other. Then I'd pick tools. Carry lots of tools and carry lots of spares. Even if you don't have the ability to repair engines or systems, Simply having the right spares aboard means that the shade tree mechanic in some tiny little hamlet won't hold you up for days while he gets a part, and it's often the wrong part, delivered by slow truck. Take some classes on diesel and system maintenance, and I can't recommend Trawler Fest highly enough as a good place to start. This will get you ready for basic maintenance. On the electrical side, veteran loopers say it's better to have two 30-amp short power cords than a single 50 amp. Uh, you should have the air and the heat on a separate circuit and carry a 15 amp reducer as well. If you don't have a generator, have a really good inverter for overnighting away from marinas. And this is going to seem banal, but 
Another item you really want on board is a washer dryer, unless you really like strolling up the dock with your dirty laundry while carrying rolls of quarters to feed the machines at marinas or motels or resorts. Well, guys, there you have it. It's a lot of great advice here. It should help you get smart about boat shopping for your 6,000 plus mile adventure around America's Great Loop. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today, Chris. It was a pleasure, Andrew. And if you are just getting started, there's a really helpful new resource out there I want to recommend. It's called BoatQuest.com. It's got real boat reviews, videos, and a huge selection of new and used boats. Check it out. It's BoatQuest.com. And remember, you can catch Chris's regular column, A Dash of Salt, in every issue of Passenger Maker Magazine. Grab a copy on the newsstand today. And if you're not already a subscriber, I invite you to do so. Just go to PassageMaker.com slash subscribe. Once again, this episode of Trawler Talk was brought to you by Outer Reef Yachts leading manufacturer of award-winning long-range motor yachts. When you think Outer Reef Yachts, think luxury, efficiency, safety, fun, peace of mind. That's what you get with any adventure aboard an Outer Reef Yacht. For more info, visit OuterReefYachts.com. That's OuterReefYachts.com. Well, that's our show, guys. I want to thank our good friend Chris Caswell for taking time out of his busy cruising schedule to join us today. Thanks to you all for listening. And if you like what you heard, don't forget to hit that five-star rating and leave us a comment in the feedback field below. Stay tuned for more episodes of Trawler Talk coming your way soon. And remember, for all your cruising needs, get your daily dose of Trawler's in at PassageMaker.com. For Trawler Talk and Passage Maker Magazine, I'm Andrew Parkinson.